Are you looking for online courses with a Christian classical approach? Would your student benefit from small, intimate classes with personal, private feedback on their work? Circe Online Courses offer classes in classical composition and literature, logic, Latin, and loving the lovely. All classes are taught by Circe Apprenticeship trained, experienced, and dedicated classical educators. Teachers use a classical approach to instruction and weekly assessment that focuses on mastery. We never grade with machines. Instead, we focus on each child as a unique person. Above all, with a focus on cultivating the soul of the student, we are dedicated to helping you cultivate wisdom and virtue in your children. A complete list of classes can be found at Courses for Students under training at searcyinstitute.org. Sign up today for the 2023-2024 school year. And now on to this week's episode. Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I'm joined again by Andrea Lipinski and Matt Bianco, and we are discussing the Epic of Gilgamesh. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Mr. Dr. Matthew Bianco is going to start us off this week with our summary of uh, books uh, 8 through 10. So take it away, Matt. My, my friends call me Dr. Narration. Dr. Narration. <laughs> that's, your, that's, your rap, that's your rap name, Dr. Narration. <laughs> also, there's a troublemaker listener who's been going around social media posting that we pronounce all their names incorrectly. Yeah. Um, I won't say any names, but it starts with an S and it ends with an era. Um, yeah. So she's a troublemaker. But and I'm going to... I'm going to continue to pronounce it the way I do because when I listen to this on audiobook, that's how the audio hmm. recorder, the guy recording the audio, that he pronounced it Enkidu. So if that's you wanna, how I it If people want to call out or join forces with the troublemaker, they can go to CerseCircle.so and, and see who it is. Yeah. And then you'll know hmm. whose name starts with the S and ends with the era. <laughs> um, I wonder right. who that is. <laughs> Book eight, Enkidu has died. Gilgamesh is mourning. And then Gilgamesh cries out to Enkidu and then sings his praises to all of the animals that Enkidu was raised with, that he grew up with, that he loves. And then he um, goes to the elders and tells them, to gather a bunch of supplies, resources, and send them downstream to Uruk. And then that in Uruk, they will build a gigantic statue um, that will be uh, a gigantic statue of Enkidu. And then that Enkidu will be placed on a royal bier. The statue will be placed to the left of his throne. And then... um, and then he will go and continue to mourn and he will roam the wilderness um, like John the Baptist wearing uh, camel hair and um, only eating locusts and honey or something like that. And then he does all that. He makes all of that happen and he sing, he says some prayers and then he goes on his journey Um And so he's traveling around the world trying – basically what he's concluded was Enkidu's death was horrible and he doesn't want to experience what Enkidu experienced. Um, 
so he doesn't want to die, which is, which is, well, I won't comment yet. Um, which is, uh, yeah, his response to Enkidu's death. So he goes out on this journey. And as he's going on this journey, he goes to the edge of the world or close to the edge of the world. And he encounters a scorpion man and the scorpion man's wife. And he explains that he's looking for a guy whose name is Utsnapishtim. And Utsnapishtim is a human who has gained eternal life and joined the assembly of the gods. And he wants to go find Utsnapishtim so that he can ask Utsnapishtim how he can get eternal life like him. Um, so the scorpion man and his wife show mercy and and send him through this tunnel. It's a very, very long tunnel. And it's a tunnel that during the day, the sun is in the sky, but at night, the sun is actually traveling through this tunnel. That's why it's dark. So the sun is traveling through this tunnel. So if he starts his journey, as soon as the tunnel, as soon as the sun clears the tunnel, comes out, then he can enter the tunnel in pitch blackness and he has 12 hours to get through the tunnel because once the sun re-enters, he'll just be burned alive. And there goes his quest for eternal life. Um, so Gilgamesh determines that entering the tunnel and risking death is worth it in order to get eternal life. Um, so he'd rather, well, anyways, okay, so he's going to do this. So he enters the tunnel and he's running and it's, he's running as fast as he can. And it's pitch black in front of him, pitch black behind him and pitch black to the sides. And it tells us after one hour of running, it was pitch black in front of him, pitch black behind him and pitch black to the sides. After two hours of running, it was pitch black in front of him, pitch black behind him, pitch black to the sides. And it keeps telling us this every hour. And then at the ninth hour, it says that he felt a cool breeze on his face or he felt a breeze on his face, which signifies obviously that he's approaching the end. But at the 10th hour, it's still pitch black in front of him, pitch black behind him, and pitch black to the sides. At the 11th hour, it's still pitch black in front of him, pitch black behind him, and pitch black to the sides. And then at the 12th hour, he exits the tunnel, and the sun enters. And so he survives, and he comes to this place that they call the Garden of the Gods, which is, I don't think he's in Colorado, so I don't think this is the same place. Um, and he goes to the Garden of the Gods, and there's a tavern there for some reason. <laughs> And he goes to the tavern and as he's approaching the tavern, this woman sees him and he looks crazy. Like he's emaciated, he's dirty, his clothes are all, you know, well, he's wearing matted hair. Um, and she gets scared and she locks the tavern up and she runs up to the roof and she looks out at him and she thinks he's a murderer. And then he asks her why she locked himself in. You know, you run a tavern. Why aren't you letting me into the tavern? Um, and he threatens to beat the door in and enter anyways. And then she asks him why he looks the way he does, but she specifically says, not just why do you look physically the way you do, but she says, why is there so much grief in your heart? She can somehow see the grief in his heart. And then he basically says, well, shouldn't I look this way? Shouldn't I have grief in my heart? My friend, my brother, Enkidu has died. And, um, and then he explains what he's doing, what he's doing, what his journey is. And then she offers him 
advice on how he should live his life based on what he's just said. And, you know, it's, it's like, you know, live, laugh, love kind of advice. No, it's a little bit more, it's a little more, it's better advice than that. But his, his response is one that's interesting because it kind of communicates that he's receiving it as if she's just giving him this live, laugh, love platitude because he says, how are how how are you how can your words possibly affect me with in light of the grief that I'm suffering for my friend right um and then she says well you can't you can't get to where you're going because you have to cross these waters and the waters are waters of death they kill whoever they it touch the water kills whoever it touches instantly um but she says that there's a guy there that crosses the river the, the waters regularly he's a servant of Utnapishtim and his name is Urshanabi. So go to the him, go to him. He's got these stone men that work with him. Go to him and he can get you across to Utnapishtim. So Gilgamesh grabs an axe and his knife and he goes down like warrior style and like sneaks up on them and then attacks them and kills all the stone men. Um, there's just to make sure that my narration didn't leave out anything. The tavern keeper never said that the stone men were dangerous or defensive or whatever, and that they needed to be killed. She just said he has stone men that work with him. But Gilgamesh, for some reason, goes down there and just destroys all the stone men, tosses them into the water. They're, they're, he breaks them up into pieces and tosses the stones into the water. Then Urshanabi is like, what the heck? What are you doing? And he says, I'm Gilgamesh. I'm from the Great Walled City of Uruk, blah, blah, blah. i he tells him about his travels and then says, this is what I want. I want to cross the waters and I want to go to Utnapishtim. And Urshanabi says, well, you can't because the waters kill everything it touches. The water kills everything it touches except the stone men. The stone men were the things that got me through across the water. And he says, but don't despair. There's another way. Go chop down a bunch of trees, fashion them into poles. Like this is now we're talking about like Venice uh the 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 boats in venice right with the sticks pushing and we can push our way across but you can't reuse the same pole because when you pull it out of the water the the waters will drip onto us and kill us so you have to like push the pole down and then drop it grab a new pole push it push it till it goes all the way down then drop it and then if we do that if we bring 300 of these poles we should be able to get to the shores of utnapishtim um so he says all of that and then they do it. But then when he, he runs out of poles and they're not there. So then Gilgamesh has to grab Ushanabi, Urshanabi's cloak or whatever, and then use it as a sail to get him the final, the final bit across the um, waters to the shore. And then they get there and he meets Utnapishtim and Utnapishtim asks him the same set of questions that the tavern keeper asked him. Why do you why do you look so emaciated? Why are your clothes so bad? And why is there so much grief in your heart? And he responds, shouldn't I be this? Shouldn't I look this way? Shouldn't I have grief in my heart? And he gives the same speech back, right? My my friend, my brother, the one whom I loved has died. And um I need to I don't want to experience this death myself. So I need to know how you became um how you became immortal yourself, right? And then, and then Utna Peace Team replies with his own um, advice of 
Well, you've done all this ceaseless striving, but all you've done is brought yourself one day closer to death. Why don't you just enjoy the life that you have? And um, basically offers his own advice back to uh, Gilgamesh. And that's how book 10 ends. I was um, very sad to realize that when I'm, when I was reading this section that we weren't done. Like I want I wanted to get to the end and I'm like, Oh man, we got one more book after this. And I got to wait and read that later. And I was kind of sad when I finished it. Yeah. I've done that to y'all a few times in this one left us on, but to be fair, several of the books kind of end cliffhanger. In this, yeah, in so this you film. just went and found the cliffhangers and then you're like, <laughs> oh, we're going to stop here and we're going to stop here and we're going to stop here. I wish I was that clever. I wish I didn't just count page numbers and, and, and make breaks. Divide. No, I'm a, I'm a master teacher. I definitely found the specific cliffhangers that would bother everybody to want to keep going. That was definitely what I did. Uh, yeah, this one was interesting. This is interesting because you, you pointed out a couple of times, but there's several that times where it repeats again right where the the same things get said the, the first book when he's going through the morning like that's obviously there's a lot of repetition there he he says it to himself and then he says almost the same stuff to the to the men of the city right about all the things that are going to mourn and Kadu's death um and then obviously the repeated question and answers to the different people he meets across, along his journey does he tell the i couldn't remember you said the innkeeper and and um no peace team did the did the scorpion people ask him the same questions too? Trying to oh, good. I can't remember. Scorpion people. This that outside the mountains. They ask him, "What is your name?" And he says the same thing: Gilgamesh, king of the Great Wall, Yorick, and I've come here to find my ancestor. Okay. Oh yeah, I forgot it was his ancestor. So. But they know who he is before he arrives. They don't know him by name. They want to know his name. But the scorpion woman is able to say, "Ooh." He is oh, two yeah. thirds divine and one third human. Yeah, yeah. The first, and the man says he must be a god. She says, well, mm-hmm. almost. Close. She okay. knew the details. Oh, yeah. So so he doesn't give the same long answer that he gives the other two, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe he's not quite as emaciated and um, yeah. torn up yet because he hasn't gone through that tunnel. Like the tunnel is what really. 12 just, hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes twelve hours at a hard sprint, right? And you skipped something that I found interesting. So, like, you know, after the first hour, um, you know, he he runs. The second and third hour, he ran again. Third and fourth hour, he ran. Sixth and seventh hour, he ran. At the eighth hour, it partners all those hours. But at the eighth hour, he cried out with fear. Hmm. And then it's the ninth hour. He feels the breeze. The tenth and eleventh are joined, and the twelfth hour he emerges. And I don't know if there's any parallels to that for any reason, but I just, I, I noticed like when, how often do we say he cries out with fear? Yeah. The only other time he locks up with fear that I can recall is when they, when they first see Humbaba at the edge of the wood. Humbaba, yeah. 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 No, he fears the scorpions when he sees them. It's oh, the yeah. The scorpion people. Okay. Oh yeah. He uh, was pierced with dread. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. And I thought it was interesting that book nine begins with the words Gilgamesh wept and book eight says all through the night Gilgamesh wept. Mm-hmm. Those two open in the same way. So the morning is still going on for both of these chapters. Yeah. 
so the um, one thing that one of the things that jumps out at me in this passage, this section of reading, was that if we go back to our earlier episodes where we talked about Enkidu being very animal-like and being humanized by the love of a woman and bread and beer or whatever, food and talking, mm-hmm. and then. Gilgamesh is very tyrannical and kind of lords over his people and oppresses them to fulfill his own desires. Um, and he becomes humanized by the love of a friend. Now the big issue, the big problem that the story is encountering is a fear of death, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Enkidu feared death but then suffered it. And now Gilgamesh fears death and is trying to avoid it at all costs. Well, not really though. I mean, he's doing it in a very interesting way because, you know, some people that fear death, they, they just don't do anything. Like they don't leave their house. They don't, right. you know, drive at night, you know, they just avoid anything dangerous. Um, he's actually running into the face of danger in order to figure out how to avoid death he's putting himself into death inducing terrifying situations like that tunnel in order to come out on the other side with immortality mm-hmm. he's willing to shorten his life if if surviving the opportunity leads to eternal immortality right mm-hmm. yeah there was a lot of that was interesting to me about the the this fear of death and the two responses to it, but from, well, first of all, it's interesting that the gods have both a butcher and a tavern and tavern keeper in, in Gilgamesh's world. <laughs> There's a God who's the butcher and a God who's the tavern keeper is it. Uh, maybe that goes along with the, or being a festival city all the time, but um, those are always, high priorities. That's right. But, and probably it's cause it was, it's in front of my mind cause we're coming toward the end of the, the Easter season. Um, and so we've, you know, been repeating things like trampling down death by death and all those kind of things that we talk about this time of year. But there's this, there's this fear of death that then there's no, there's no answer for it other than trying to be made immortal. You no, know, granted that especially by the gods that apparently in, in Gilgamesh's world, only, only one man has been granted that. Um, and we don't even know why yet or how I think we get some, I think we get some Greeks who get that right. Does Hercules end up being made immortal? Uh, I can't remember now. And so in the myths, but, and so it just kind of paints the picture of the, of the ancient, you know, Mesopotamian world where there's, there is nothing. Right. So the one person you said, eat, uh, eat, laugh, love, I thought, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's the one answer, right? It's just kind of hedonism. But it's, what was fascinating to me was like, that wasn't enough for Gilgamesh. He was like, well, that's, that's not an answer to the sorrow I'm feeling right now to just live it up. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't, help at all so uh, it was interesting that answer was kind of empty and we'll see we, we, he hasn't responded yet to the second answer but i think that's a great thread you pull on brandon that that's one thing to be told to eat drink and be merry it's another thing to be told that when you're in the midst of this kind of sorrow and and to have the ears to hear that at that moment is not the same thing as to hear that when all seems well mm. Yeah, I felt like their answers, even the tavern keeper and Utnapishtim both, 
I felt like their answers were better than live, laugh, love or eat, drink and be merry. Um, I mean, she says humans are born, they live, then they die. This is the order that the gods have decreed. But until the end comes, enjoy your life. Spend it in happiness, not despair. Savor your food. Make each of your days a delight. Bathe and anoint yourself. Actually, this is very much eat, drink, and be merry. Wear bright clothes that are sparkling clean. Let music and dancing fill your house. But here's where it gets better. Love the child who holds you by the hand and give your wife pleasure in your embrace. That is the best way for a man to live. Um, so that's not, that's not like completely hedonistic. Um, <laughs> you know, she, she closes well. Yeah, it doesn't matter, people. right? What's up? There's a, at the end, there's a regard for other people. It's mm-hmm. not just about yeah, yourself. Right. Yeah. He was living the other way before Enkidu showed up, right? He was living, mm-hmm. just taking yeah. all the wives and, you know. Yeah. Better you know, done that part. basically. It's his response, yeah. right? Yeah. But, but either way, whether, no matter, no matter how cliche or, or how wise the advice is, he can't hear it. Right. What are you saying? My heart is sick for my friend who died. What can your words mean when my heart is sick for Enkidu who died? You have to know who you're talking to, right? Like these words go, it's not a bad way to guide a friend, but that friend, Gilgamesh, is not ready. Yeah. What would happen if Shiduri had just wept with him? Mm. Hmm. That's a great question. She just held him and they wept together. Mm-hmm. Like a kid. Yeah. I was about to say, yeah. Is it like, not to make too much of a pun, but this, they have this epic friendship, right? This, this kind of, mm-hmm. um, like, was there no one else in Uruk who could even understand that, that level of relationship that he, that was lost for him. So there was no one who could weep with him. <clears throat> um, where he was, right? That could that could have consoled him. With Achilles, because with Achilles you get Priam, right? You get another great kind of great man, great souled man who's lost someone very, very close. And is there not somebody who could really understand what, what Gilgamesh is going through? But maybe among the gods or someone who's been around for a long time, maybe the one he's talking to now, who's probably lost a lot of people having lived a long time. Who knows what's coming next, but yeah it's interesting because his answer isn't um his answer is not the same as the tavern keepers it's it's almost like yeah this is the way it goes um er everybody dies and no one knows when and sometimes the the young and the beautiful are cut down in the prime of their life and death comes when death comes and no one gets to know um so why are you why are you acting different than but like like something should be different? Is kind of is almost how he ends this book ten. Well, it, right. But he does point out the differences, right? He says, "You're you're shortening your life doing mm. all this, but have you ever stopped to consider the life that you have and how blessed?" Right. It is right. He does say you're better than to everybody most, yeah. else's. Yeah, and that's yet, this part of it can't be different. You're all we're all you're all going to die, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like your question, Matt, about if Shidori had wept with him. 
had sat with him, had mourned with him in some manner, right? Um, because when she, when he gives his speech of mourning to her, then when he shows up with, um, oh, how do you say his name? Utnapishtim? Utnapishtim. He gives the exact same speech and then a little more, right? Um, I'm here for you. I've wandered the world. I've worn myself out. I have filled my muscles with pain and anguish. I've killed. I've done this. Like he's building his case. Something else, it has to end differently, right? We can't just, don't, don't just tell me what she told me without him saying that. Um, so he even, he throws out a command at the end. Now let the gates of sorrow be closed behind me and let it be sealed shut with tar and pitch. Right? Like I got nothing left. Lock me in sorrow forever. Um, and that's when he gives them the whole, whoa, whoa, whoa. Have you compared your blessed lot with the fools? Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't, I mean, I think at least the way the text reads, he doesn't know yet that he's actually talking to Utna Peace Team. Right. right. He yeah. asks, where is Utna Peace Team? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So he doesn't know he's getting the wisdom of someone who's lived a very long time. Um, I found it fascinating too that Ushnapishim is alone like he's way out here in the middle of nowhere across this ocean of death but he appears to be all by himself on this island or shore Well, and Ushnapishim out of the three of the travelers that he bumps into so far doesn't ask him his name the other two ask him his name Mm. he goes right to why are your cheeks so hollow hmm Hmm. it's interesting if he's if he's if he's a descendant of Ushnapish team like you you wonder does has he been keeping tabs on his on his progeny <laughs> over the generations so he already knows who who Gilgamesh is and what he is you know what he's accomplished and he seems to he seems to know that he's been favored his whole life, right? He wants to know who he is, who he's yeah. talking to already. But his name, he says, Gilgamesh, why prolong your grief? So he says oh, yeah. his name without Gilgamesh ever having told him his name. The relationship thing might be, might be a key or something, because, I mean, I don't want to cheat and go ahead, but in the very first opening lines of the next book, it says... Um, you look just like me. Gilgamesh says, you look just like me. That's funny. <laughs> I thought you would look like a god, but you look just like me. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, Grandpa, you look... <laughs> hey, yeah. Papa, you look just like me. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. I don't think... I don't I don't think Gilgamesh recognizes him when he gives that first long speech and then adds to it. Yeah. The emblazon his cause. Yeah. I feel like by hearing the same speech repeated and this extra addition of I've worn myself out, I've filled my muscles with pain and anguish, I've killed all these things, right? And I, I got to the tavern keeper and I was still heartsick. So now lock me away in sorrow. Like it's it. I'm done. Hmm. It's interesting. The first thing that Utna Pishtim wants him to do is compare. Yeah, I thought, uh, yeah, because of how blessed he's been, right? And all he's been offered. Uh, in in the first book in book in book eight not the first book but the first book for this week um i noticed that when he's when he's crying out like the way he refers to indiku 
the axe by my side, uh, the knife in my mm, sheath. Yeah, yeah. Like he describes all these things that are armor and armory. So that that mm-hmm. that Indiku is this protection for him, which is what he which is what he was, right? And you you've been bringing up Andrea that he was going to be sacrificed, that he was there. You know, how, what's his relationship? How is he? How is he making Gilgamesh better? And what's his that? What's he's what was he created for? Right. Um, and so it, Gilgamesh seems to recognize Indiku as this kind of protection for him. Um, in, in, as he cries out and then, and then, and the very next page, when he starts talking about the statue, he's going to make mm-hmm. all the things he says for them to use are, are all the things that, um, was it Ishtar? Ishtar offered him. Uh, when he was when she was trying to seduce him, like uh, all the types of jewels yeah. and gold, and so like right. he's lost a friend. He's now now instead of getting those things, he's losing those things, or or not losing, but he's giving them up in order to honor Indiku. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's whatever Indiku was that's is completely unraveling, right? It's for him. It feels like that way to him. Um, but then you, we close this section with him being reminded, yeah, but you've been blessed all along." Even to the point that Indiku took the punishment for the, the things y'all did, and not you. I mean, you're taking a different punishment, but but he's the one who died for it. Um, it, it that was interesting to me that that kind of comes back around to that when he's when he's talking to him and pointing out that that pointing out of like you've lived a very blessed life compared to like everyone else. Um, it was interesting. <laughs> now, I, now I want to go reread the Iliad and see. If um, all of the stuff that Agamemnon in book nine, all the stuff that Agamemnon offers to Achilles in order to get him to return to battle is all of the stuff that Achilles gives away during the funeral games for Patroclus. Oh, interesting. That would be fun. I bet there's some parallels there. Yeah. Um, You're going to get to read the Iliad soon. I am. Well, that's true. Yeah. I am. Well, yeah, in the apprenticeship this year, we get to read the Iliad. That's exciting. I love so that. So have I. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Brandon, you're going to call down the wrath of our of our of our listener, our friendly, our friendly. I'm going to correct your pronunciation, listener. If you say Endiku, it's Enkidu. 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 You're, you're flipping the consonants. It. That's even worse than what I'm doing in her. I'm, making, I'm, I'm making it worse. Um, yeah. Yeah. In Kaidu, I think is what we were told, but uh, that's what she says. Now yeah. I'm all now I'm all stuck in my head. I already had to try to figure out the new name, the the ancestor's name, get that one right. Too, way too many syllables there for me to get it right. Andrea, when you, right, so- you mentioned the the comparison things a minute ago, um, mm-hmm. the the uh, the thing is, who, has he been doing a comparison at all? And if he has, with whom? I, I think he has been comparing his life to others, but he's comparing his life to the immortals. Right. No, he, because Udnapeshtim tells him, have you paused to compare your own blessed lot with a fool's? Yeah. That's what I mean. I think, I think, I think Udnapeshtim sees the, the, the cause of Gilgamesh's problem is that he's comparing himself to those that are beyond him rather than to those that are like him. And that's what Utnapishtim is telling him. Like, you need to stop comparing yourself to the gods and start comparing yourself to the other mortals. And you'll see. Life's not as bad as you think it is. Mm-hmm. That's a good observation. Mm-hmm. I mean, something that you're 
to your, your point pulled out for me that I hadn't noticed. Yeah, all together. Hello, everyone. I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor for this month, the Honors College at Belmont Abbey. The Honors College brings the good, the true, and the beautiful to the next generation of leaders. With this great books-based program, the Honors College enlightens and challenges young minds while also preparing them for a fruitful life. Students can major in the great books or choose a professional major founded on those classic texts. With SCOLA, its summer high school program in July, high school students get a taste of the experience combined with the great outdoors, fun, and friendship. Discover the world through a critical eye on this all-encompassing journey. The Honors College of Belmont Abbey, a life well-lived awaits. Visit them at www.bac.edu backslash honors. And Brandon, what you pulled on out of book eight, part of his morning, uh, Gilgamesh's morning, it's the third page for us of book eight, um, where he says, Oh, Enkidu, you were the axe at my side in which my arm trusted, the knife in my sheath, the shield I carried, my glorious robe, the wide belt around my loins. Right. So he was all of his protective clothing. And then he's, so I, I linked that into one grouping. Then he does another kind of way of comparing him. Beloved friend, swift stallion, wild deer, leopard, ranging in the wilderness. Uh, swift stallion, wild deer, leopard, ranging in the wilderness. He repeats that, right? So those are metaphors for who he is. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on, together we crossed the mountains. Together we slaughtered the bull of heaven. We killed Humbaba. Those are things that, so to me, I saw it as at the, the bottom grouping is things that they did together. The middle grouping is things, metaphors for who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I, I, I titled that first one, because I started at the top as protective clothing, but then I was like, well, if we have are and do, do we have have? Mm. Um, <laughs> you know? So um, those were pr- clothing that he had, mm. that, that Gilgamesh had, right? He had a robe, he had a belt, um, he had a shield, he had a sheath or a knife, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And now so he's that's in the rough, art, have and do. Yeah. Now mm-hmm. he's in rough animal clothes. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. Um, huh. That really is kind of a complete picture of who Enkidu was uh, to, to Gilgamesh. So, to Gilgamesh. Yeah. I noticed that they, when he goes across the waters of death, travel it's another uh three days and nights like he like when they were traveling um and they travel faster than everybody else it's Mm -hmm. interesting that that kind of calls back to his his time with traveling with inkadu um and then the other other thing i noticed with the timelines is that he mourns for six days and nights um before burying the seven nights right Uh, i don't know why it matters no, I don't either, but um, for six days, oh, you're, right, you're right. Six days and seven nights, I mourned him. Yeah, yeah. So um, that is interesting, though, because I think we would typically reverse that. Or if you had, it would be seven days, six nights. You know. More days than nights. But I'm wondering, like in the Hebrew uh, nation, my understanding is that the day started at the nighttime. Mm-hmm. The, right. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if that's why they're saying six days and seven nights. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know how these people saw day and night. But it's in that morning. Other than the when the sun he, hides inside of earth. 
<laughs> it's in that morning where he gets, becomes terrified by death. Like that's when he it's oh. it's, as that, it's in that wrapping up. Like he's that seventh morning. Yeah. Well, he's the body begins. The body begins to decompose. Like, mm. I mean, it's kind of gross. He says the maggot fell out of his nose. You know what I mean? It's like. What page are you on? I totally missed uh, the maggot. I'm on uh, right now. I'm looking at it in book 10, 167. Um, but he okay. I think he says it. Tw- I think he says it in both of those long. He says it to Shaduri and he says it again to. Um, to oh, us. yeah, there it is. Yeah. And so and then somewhere he says. He turned, he talks about him. He talks about uh, Enkidu turning to clay. Yeah, and I was just right thinking after that. It's kind of dust to he dust. And that's, yeah, this dust to dust thing is just freaking him out. Right. And so. Yeah, I mean, he writes it right next to each other. He says, My beloved friend has turned into clay. My beloved Enkidu has turned into mm. clay. Like he's got to say it twice to read, you know, like, yeah. If this really happened. Then he says, And won't I too lie down in the dirt like him and never arise again? Like it's shocking to him. I don't know how he never thought of this. Yeah. Well, he was nothing could touch him, right? Until until he's just running Uruk like he like a half god or yeah. partial god, right? Among these more yeah, mere yeah. mortals, and then Enkidu challenges them, and then they have to fight in Baba, and then Enkidu dies, and uh, Enkidu mm. was his equal, right, in many ways, and so it brings that mortality into into reality for him. So if I pull on that, okay, so Gilgamesh begins as a tyrant, but with the love of a friend becomes a man. And Enkidu begins as an animal with the love of a woman, some food and some speech becomes a man, mm-hmm. right? If they both have a fear of death, Enkidu tries to avoid it, right? Mm-hmm. Let's not go to Humba, Humbaba. Let's like, he tries to avoid it, knowing this can happen. He's experienced it within the animal world very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and he still dies because he knows this can happen. And Gilgamesh is now fearing death for what seems like the first time. Mm-hmm. And he is willing to risk more, as you pointed out, Matt. But where do you think this is going to end? I know we we have one book left. Is he going to die? I think the stone men are going to come back to life and just, <laughs> just crush him to death. Take their revenge. I'm crawling out of the water. Dripping in water, they're just going to attack him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Water. So I do think, so there was, there was a part of me that I wondered when I read Gilgamesh Wept in book eight, and I read it again, Gilgamesh Wept in book nine, I wondered yeah. if his tears were going to flood the earth. Huh. Mm. Yeah, that, you, you raise a good question though, right? Because the the prologue in this version, it's not like we talked about, it's not the uh, the real prologue, but is about go find this like here to go find this box in the wall and see the story of Gilgamesh, right? And so is it a story of here's how to be great and have some some version of eternal life, you know, what that whatever that looks like for the for the Akkadians and Gilgamesh. Um or is this a story of you know even great men come to death and there's no there's no escape, right? There's no escape. Mm-hmm. And so um that's that's the question, right? Or that's a question we're left with heading into book eleven. Um, what? How does Gilgamesh's story end? Does he find what he's looking for in eternal life, or does he have to kind of just uh, accept the, the the fate and then choose what kind of life he's going to live the rest of the rest of his days? 
I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, when he's talking to Shaduri, the, the tavern keeper, Nine. she says, Gilgamesh, this is on page 168. She, Shaduri said, Gilgamesh, where are you roaming? You will never find the eternal life that you seek. When the gods created mankind, they also created death and they held back eternal life for themselves alone. Mm. This is an interesting way of describing it. Like, I think we've talked a little bit earlier in earlier episodes about, um, you know, some of the arguments out there that Genesis is a, or Genesis two is a response Mm. to um, the Epic of Gilgamesh and, and that whatever's going on, right. These, these stories are being told by different people groups and they're being told in a way that reflects their understanding of the world. And it is interesting that the people of Gilgamesh, of Uruk, their view of the world is that the gods created men, with gave them death, created death for them, and then withheld eternal life. But the Israelite view of the world, the Hebrew view of the world, is that God created man, and then man creates death, or or creates the entry point for death, create, creates the possibility yeah. of death, brings death into the world and then loses their access to eternal life. Like they were given eternal life mm-hmm. or access to it. And then they, they, they lose it because of their own actions. Right. So Shaduri is blaming the gods for the way, or no, she's not blaming. She's just saying, this is the Stating. way it is. Yeah. And then, um, but how different that view is compared to the, the Hebrew view. And then you talk about the waters of death versus the river of life. You know, there's that kind of mm-hmm. stuff going on. Does, does yeah. Utnapishtim describe the role of the gods in the same way? Uh, I liked the line at the end. He doesn't say, I don't, I don't know that he talks about the gods. I didn't mark that from him. But he does say at the very end, his last paragraph, the sleeper and the dead, how alike they are, which is just my own. He aside. says the gods of, okay, says the gods have lavished their gifts on him. Just um, mm-hmm. about how fortunate he is. And then, yes, the gods took Enkidu's life, but man's life is short at any moment. He doesn't specifically say that they, they set it up that way, that, but that they take everyone's life, more like they take everyone's life. Ultimately, when the gods assemble, they decide your fate. They establish both life and death for you, but the time of death they do not reveal. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is, I don't. I mean, it's kind of a, a it's a, it's a vaguer way of describing the gods' role in all of this, and it's not quite as um, there's not much blame being ascribed to it in this sense, even though she's not necessarily putting blame on them. She's just saying this is what they did, but she's putting responsibility on them. It is interesting, though, that she she says that they hold they kept back eternal life. So they don't let anybody have eternal life, yeah. which that sounds more. That, yeah, yeah, that sounds um, more passive. Like you just they're not not like you should live forever. Something will kill you. You know, what I mean, um, but he says that they almost like they mark it out and they decide when there's a specific, they're more actively deciding when someone's going to live or die the way he describes it. And they establish it at the beginning. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And they don't reveal it, right? There's something that can't, you know, it's not like it's undecided. It seems like it's decided, just not revealed. And I feel like there's things that echo that idea in scripture after death enters in, right? That who can know the, who can know the, the length of our day I'm, I'm not going to be able to pull that scripture out of my head on command but like mm-hmm. that that once death enters for the hebrews that's that idea is there too right like who can they add one more day of their life by you know is it being anxious or i can't remember worrying maybe um maybe it's the psalmist of the proverbs but yeah yeah okay. you're right i know you're talking about. okay um so therefore like, well, the, re- the listeners all do too that's right that's right um they're probably screaming out chapter and verse right now while I'm fumbling around. But uh, yeah, so th- th- that idea echoes in even in through the Hebrew understanding. But you're, but you're right, Matt. The difference is the how things get started, right? And so it's not just that man brings it in for the Hebrews. It's that man creates a situation where it's necessary. Death's necessary hmm. um, so that we're not stuck in <laughs> eternal damnation. If you, I mean, as far as in the Christian view, right? Death becomes necessary so that we're not stuck that way. Yeah, okay, that... That's the weirdest part to me about Gilgamesh's response hmm. is that he's suffering. Oh, right. <laughs> he's grieving horribly. And what he wants is to be trapped in that grief for eternity. Yeah, that's that doesn't make sense to me. That is interesting. That Well, that brings up another question. I said we were going to find out whether it's a story about how to get eternal life or how to deal with the fact that you don't get eternal life is, is, is that um, dichotomy going to be revealed to him that he's not seeing for himself, right? Like he's afraid of death. So he wants to live forever, but also he's miserable because the one person that he, you know, cares about is gone. Um, is, is that can be pointed out to him? Like, do you really want to live in this state forever? <laughs> um that is, I didn't think about that, but that's very, that is weird for him to risk so much to stay in pain, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, he is a risking to get out of pain, right? For eternal life. He's willing to risk to get something else. But then when he gets there, he doesn't realize he's made it to the person he's trying to get, get to. He ends his speech with, all right, I give up. Lock, lock me in sorrow forever. You're right, Matt. That's quite a contrast. The um, this is an interesting contrast too with David, right? When when David realizes that, you know, when Nathan tells reminds David that, or points out to David that he is the man who has stolen another another man's sheep, um, in this case Bathsheba, and then and then he realizes that the the, the gravity of his sin. And that the child he has, he has with her as a child, that's, you know, the fruit of adultery. And then she, and the child, he's told the child's going to die. And he mourns and weeps and prays and begs for right up until the time the child dies. And then when the child dies, everybody's scared to tell him because they're like, if he reacted this way before the child was dead, how's he going to react after the child's dead? But then after the child's dead, he just gets up, washes himself, and goes on. And they and he's asked about it. And he says, Well, before the child died, it was me asking God to relent. But now that the child's gone, there's nothing 
it's over, right? I can't do anything mm-hmm. about it. Um, but Gilgamesh has the opposite response. When Enkidu is dying, Gilgamesh is hardly present. Like back in book seven, right? He's there kind of, but he's like not really contending. And, you know, Enkidu has to ask, where are you? Where are you? You know, why are you here with me? And then, and then after Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh says that I thought the violence of my grief would bring him back. And it didn't. Like he tries to bring, he he doesn't try to save Enkidu from death as, he's not as committed to that activity. But then after Enkidu dies, that's when Mm. he wants to try to change things. This is an opposite course, response he, David, from David. But also, he's still being... Be, he, Gilgamesh is still learning what it means to be man, then. He doesn't have control over death. He, he doesn't get everything his way. He, right. that, that's a tyrant attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to bring yeah, to so that. that divine part of it is still stronger than... Mm-hmm. The, the divine part of him is still overacting overruling mm-hmm. his yeah, that is interesting the, too because if you compare that if you compare that to the way we we see some of the um lower gods act it's that's what they do right like they go throw a fit to the to the higher god it's the violence of their of their uh and uh uh indignation that that gets the higher god to act right the, when ishtar goes and is like they made a fool of me send the bull of heaven and he's like it'll cause a famine but she just keeps complaining that is how the gods act right that the, when they want something done by uh on a, i forgot what his name is now the one starts with an a that seems to be the, the zeus-like figure in this in this pantheon but um but we see that in the in the in the other in other epics and things too right they'll go they'll go appeal to to zeus with complaining and with trying to get him to change his mind and do something they want him to do. So in that sense, he, that is even more so him acting like the God part of him. This is how you get things changed about guy, this violence of grieving or this violence of action, hmm. but he doesn't get it because he's not one of the gods. He's not immortal. He's not. Part Interestingly, of he never actually calls on the gods. Does he? No, no, not that we, not that he says. Yeah. Not explicitly. Yeah, he just mourns. I mean, in the funeral, there is a little bit um, like Ishtar, you know, he has them participating in the funeral, right? In book eight. Um, oh, yeah. He, he makes all these sacrifices as as he makes all these sacrifices and asks them to be with Kadu in the under in the underworld. So he's not like so he's not alone to walk with him in the underworld. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Ishtar, Sheen, or how do you say that? Um, this is where yeah, he's giving. But up that's all more the, about that's more about receiving Enkidu in the with honor in the underworld. Yeah, which is I thought was interesting. It's different. Like we don't really see 
like there's almost this image that they could, they'll walk with him in the underworld, which is something different than we see in other depictions of the underworld. You don't really have other gods down there walking amongst the men, the shades. God, but in a, this way, a lot of gods actually. Yeah. Oh yeah. Star Sheen, Ereshkigal, Tammuz, Namtar, Hushbisha, Kasataba, Ninchaluha, Bibu, and then and Euphrates. Yeah, we get a bunch of gods we never heard of all of a sudden in this, in this well, passage. Well, no, Bibu is just going to get a picture of the Holy Euphrates, right? Nice. That's, that. that's what he gets. Bearing a picture of the Holy Euphrates. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So there's nine gods in total, and then um, at the end he says, let the gods accept these, all of those gifts, let them welcome my friend and walk at his side in the underworld so that Enkidu may not be sick at heart. Oh, and he spreads all these offerings out in front of Shamash. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then prays to each of those gods. One, two... Okay. Three, four, five, six. Nine. Nine. Plus, be ten. Plus Shamash, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a javelin, a knife, a flask, a flute, a chair and scepter, a necklace, a bracelet, a mirror, and another knife. Well, and before Shamash, he puts out bowls of honey and honey and uh, butter. Yeah. Right, the fat, the butter yeah. is the yeah. fat. Yeah, so so it's a food offering to yeah. Samash, right? And the rest of it's all yeah, yeah, craft, good point. crafts, yeah, yeah, very bejeweled crafts. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Fascinating. The stone men aren't don't those guys appear in the um, the Noah movie? <laughs> Yes. I don't know what movie you speak of. The uh, Russell Crowe, right? Russell Crowe, yeah, yeah, the one that got all the flack for being so. Uh, let's say going outside the 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 biblical text, but I think probably drawing on other flood narratives, but ancient area yeah. stuff, yeah, yeah. There are these kind of stone giants, almost like the ones you see in. Um, well, depending on how you read uh, Lord of the Rings, when they're in the when they're on the outside of the mountain pass and they had to turn back. You either read that as there are actual like giant stone men throwing the boulders around in that book or, or they're saying the boulders are being thrown around like giants are throwing them. It's, it's a little vague the way Tolkien writes it, but huh. same idea though. Right? And yeah. And Noah, the stone men are helping him build the ark, aren't they? Oh, I don't know. That'd be interesting because they're the boat guys in this book. Yeah. That'd be like a direct, Correlation to the Gilgamesh, which might be the case if they were trying to draw from things outside of the, the biblical narrative. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, the person who's been calling us out has questions about this half, this part God stuff. So we're going to have to get into that in the in the Q and A episode. But that sounds oh. great. See how that plays in. If she's nice to us. The rest of the time. Well, you can just recommend a different podcast to her that will explain it all way better than you <laughs> could, anyways. So. Yes. Yeah. Because their whole show is devoted to explaining that. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole episode on that. Yeah. Well, we have some questions lined up for book, book 11, right? And we've got bueno. what, what kind of story is this? Uh, how's he going to respond? Um, I'm excited. This has been fun. 
And then Andrew can tell us whether we should read it or not ever again. People should read it or not. Since that was her opening question. Yeah. It is Maybe. a question worth asking at the beginning and at the end, I think. Uh, yeah, I think so. Probably for all these books. Why? Why this one? Um, so any any closing thoughts on these before we, we head out for the week? I agree. Um with his grandfather, that the sleeper and the death, that the sleeper and the dead, how alike they are. Hmm. I've often wondered that God made us to where we had to sleep. Right, one of the best forms of torture is to keep somebody awake. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know, man. There are some YouTube channels with people saying that we actually don't need to sleep and that we just, it's just a mental thing that we've put, imposed upon ourselves. So, whatever. I'll send you some links to. Uh, no, I'm not watching. Human sharks just constantly moving and stay away. I like sleep. Why would I want to do yeah. give it up? Yeah. But I also like doing just imagine how many more books I can read and more languages I can learn if I didn't have to sleep. I'd have eight hours every night to work mm. on those things. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, and thanks everybody for listening and, and uh, joining us as we dive into Gilgamesh. Uh, join us next week for book 11 to wrap it up. Uh, like I mentioned, you can send questions or comments to podcast at searcyinstitute.org or join us in the conversation uh, at circle.searcy.so. Um, see things for lots of podcasts over there. And we will see you next week. Be sure to check out the other shows on the Searcy Podcast Network. 